Welcome, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to our Tachayul Nativeness and Emergent Issues podcast series organized by the members of the ERC project named Tachayul at the UCL's Institute for Global Prosperity, the IGP. I am Sertaj Sehilkoğlu, the primary investigator of this five-year project. The need for this podcast series emerged due to a number of reasons. Firstly, the members of this team, as many of you may already be familiar, are often native scholars who have expertise about the very geographies they have grown up in. The project is carried in 11 different countries in Eastern Europe, the Middle East and South Asia, often referred to as the Global South. That being said, those very contexts are more vulnerable to global changes and crises, as we have seen in a number of events in the last couple of months. Thus, the members of this team have suggested to create a platform where we can address the emergent issues as they happen with other scholars, intellectuals and activists. Today, we are hosting Nazan Üstünda, Özlem Göner and Sardar Saadi. Nazan Üstünda is a sociologist specialized on social policy, gender subjectivities and state violence in Kurdistan. Üstünda is a fellow of Gerda Henkel Stiftung Patrimonies program. Formerly, she held a joint fellowship from Academy at Risk and IE Scholar Rescue Fund and was affiliated with the Forum for Trans regional studies in Berlin. She is also one of the site scholars in our very own Tachayul project. Özlem Gönar is an associate professor of sociology and anthropology at College Staten Island and Middle Eastern Studies at City University New York Graduate Center. She is a member of the Emergent Committee for Rojava and is the author of Turkish National Identity and its Outsiders, Memories of State Violence in Dersim. Dr. Sardar Saadi is an anthropologist and an SSHRC postdoctoral fellow at Wenengen University. Aside from being the co-director of the Institute of Social Sciences at the University of Rojava, the host and producer of the podcast series, The Kurdish Edition. So without further ado, I'd like to turn to Nazar Üstünde. My dear Sartaj, thank you so much. Sartaj is um, a lovely, a beautiful friend of mine. We have been together for such a long time and I'm proud to be in your podcast, dear Sartaj. And I'm proud to be, of course, together with Özlem and Sardar, all of them great scholars, wonderful activists and really, really uh, leading figures in Kurdish activist academia. The uh, title of this uh, podcast is War in the Middle East, but the war that we are actually referring to is mainly the war that is fought in the poor parts of Kurdistan. As uh, many of our listeners probably already know, Kurdistan is separated into four different regions, and all these regions are ruled by different nation states and colonized, of course, occupied. Uh, by four uh, nation states, Turkey, Syria, Iraq and Iran. And currently there is a war going on in all these four regions. Turkey leading the war in three regions. That is Syria, in northern, northeastern Syria, what we call Rojava. Then in Bakur, where the PKK freedom fighters are located. And in Bakur, 
where the war against Kurds is fought through mass imprisonment, mass arrest, and delegalization of institutions. In Iran, on the other hand, as you know, there is an ongoing revolution under the leadership. I mean, I don't want to say under the leadership because actually there are many, many different groups who are equally participating in this extremely interesting and maybe one of the most important events of the 21st century. But the Kurdish slogan is leading, let's say, paving the way, showing the way, showing the route for the protesters, the revolutionaries, and Jinjiat Azadi, meaning uh, women, life, and freedom. Why? My question is, why is there an ongoing war against Kurds in four countries at the same time? What is wrong with the Kurds? Why are they surrounded by all these occupying, colonizing powers? What is the problem? And I will argue that, as I said, in Iran and as well as in Turkey and in northeastern Syria and in Bashur, in Iraq, under the leadership of Kurdish freedom movement, Kurds have accomplished two sea freedom dreams, which I borrow from Robin Kelly, who is a well-known black scholar who has actually written about the different ways in which blacks have pursued their dreams, their freedom dreams, through art. I mean, not only through art, also through political activism. Well, in the Kurdish case, politics has become not so much art. Maybe now art is also emerging as a sphere where these freedom dreams are dreamt. But politics has been the specific area where Kurdish people have dreamed freedom dreams against occupation, against colonization, against patriarchy, against capitalism. And in northeastern Syria, that has resulted in the revolution, which we call the Rojava revolution, where basically an autonomous region was declared, a horizontal way of governance was declared, a constitution that promotes women's rights, that promotes human rights, was declared complete and the aim of a non-state free society is struggled to be realized. In Turkey as well, Kurds have been, especially between 2013 and 2015, when the peace process between uh, Kurdistan Workers' Party, PKK, and the Turkish state was being negotiated, let's say, because it wasn't really a peace process as we know it, but it was a declaration of both sides that they are intending to move towards peace. But it could only continue for two years. And after two years, Turkish state and President Erdogan has decided, has unilaterally destroyed the peace process, let's say. And during this time between 2013 and 2015, for the first time, Kurds have in Turkey become prominent and legitimate actors. Why do I say for the first time? Maybe the struggle was going on for 40 years, but for the first time during the peace process, Kurds were able to become legitimate and legal actors who would not only lead Kurdish people towards freedom, but also were candidates 
to bring Turkish people to freedom. And they were able to articulate in the political space their different dreams. And these dreams had several dimensions. These are new ways of arranging governance as a horizontal, as a convival process. Second was a different way of imagining and arranging gender relations where women could pursue their autonomy and could maybe after 5,000 years of patriarchal rule experiment with new ways of being, new ways of becoming, new ethical and aesthetic values. And also, of course, people's relation to the nature have changed. And Kurdish people, Kurdish freedom movement has declared itself to be an ecological movement. Well, as a result of these, I have actually written a book on this, and it's going to come hopefully in the fall of next year. What happened is that the Kurdish freedom movement, especially the women of the Kurdish freedom movement, were able to articulate a new sense of truth, a new ontology, a new sense of being a new sense of truth and a new sense of freedom. So a new ontology, a new epistemology and a new form of politics. If you are familiar with black theory, Sylvia Winter, who is a pioneer in Caribbean studies and black Caribbean studies, actually, she talks about the fact that we as the members of the colonial world should actually try to decolonize our being, our truth and our freedom from Western liberal capitalism. And that's exactly what the Kurds have done through establishing different institutions, through establishing different discourses and so on. But this is basically not reciprocated or responded well by the states that have been occupying Kurdistan for such a long time. And therefore, we have right now at the same minute, simultaneously, four wars going on, as I have just explained, in the region, which is going to either change the geography, change the relations, change the nation states and so on, either towards more freedom or towards more authoritarianism. That's why many of us, academics and activists, see this war as a war of survival, as a war that is going to determine basically whether we will be or we won't be. And finally, to the world, maybe I can say that what happened in the last decades with the Kurdish movement's pursuit of their freedom dreams is that they have also created a different kind of alliance with the world, and which is now becoming also a model for relating to other movements around the world. I mean, before, right, when people got oppressed or when people were uh, finding themselves in war, when they were violating, people would call for empathy. I mean, think about the impossible conditions we are living in. And Kurds have done so too. But now, as they have accomplished to create their own autonomous organizations in Syria, in um, Turkey, in Iran, they are not asking for empathy, but they are asking for solidarity and they are asking for multiplication 
of such freedom dreams all around the world. So they are not looking for attention. They are not looking for pity. They are not looking for an identification with their victimization. But what they are calling the world and other movements and other people is come take part in our dreams, share your freedom dreams with us, and let's produce a world that has no states but rooted cultures, that has women's freedom, ecological life, basically a free life based on the principle of the freedom movement. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nazan Hocam. Now we are turning to Özlem Gönay. Thank you so much for having us here and thank you very much, Nazan, for laying the grounds for us. And this is indeed a very important moment and it's a very ironic moment for Kurds and for, as Nazan suggested, for the global people, peoplehoods who care about peace and women's freedom and direct pluralist democracy. It's a very ironic moment. Why? Well, on one hand, we see the slogan of Jin Jian Azadi, women, life, freedom, that, you know, originated in the Kurdish movement, Kurdish freedom movement in the PKK and the freedom movement associated with that. On the one hand, we have witnessed the popularization of this. And on the other hand, in everywhere, right, started with the revolution in Iran, spread from Kurdish regions of Iran to broader Iran, to the globe. And we have witnessed a moment where feminists, progressives, and even liberals, if from different angles, people picked on the slogan and uh, for different reasons, for different ideological motivations, uh, it has been popularized. On the other hand, simultaneously, we have further criminalization of the Kurdish movement at the hands of many of these states that Nazan just listed. And not just at the hands of these states, but we know, for example, one of the major colonizer forces in this geopolitical game, Turkey, which has the second largest army of the NATO, has also been historically supported by NATO, NATO alliance, NATO countries. And, you know, not just criminalization at the end of Turkey, not just violence at the ends of Turkey, but complicity of Europe, United States, NATO in this war against the Kurds have intensified at the same exact moment as there is a chance, an option for the world to recognize the Kurdish movement and all the freedom dreams that Nazan has beautifully expressed here. So instead of, you know, seeing that, seeing the potential of the Kurdish movement, seeing the progressive, the liberationary potential of this movement and what it can be done, how it can be replicated in different spheres, how these connections can be made. Obviously, these are being done, but we've seen a bigger force, a backlash against this by Turkey, which, for example, a very ironic moment was weeks after the killing of Jina and in the midst of the protests in Rojalat and Iran, Turkey killed Nagihan Akarsel in northern Iraq in transborder transgression to kill one of the figures who have created the slogan of Jinjian Azadi. 
So, and criminalization, we see at the same time as, you know, a Swedish parliamentarian in the European Union Parliament says women like freedom and thus uh, an act of cutting her hair and standing in solidarity with the women in the region. Simultaneously, Sweden, because of this NATO alliance and Turkey's backlash against their membership in the NATO, have started a new recriminalization of people who have been active in the Kurdish movement, who have been uh, sympathizers of the Kurdish movement, and started already to send people, Kurdish people, back to Turkey based on Turkey's list so that they could be imprisoned and charged with charges of terrorism in Turkey. So we've seen, you know, this moment that could go in either direction. It's ironic, but it's not surprising, because as Nazan was saying, the Kurdish freedom movement promises a different way of engaging, a different way of living, a different way of ruling that is anti-colonial, that is anti-capitalist, that's anti-patriarchal, and that started to align with, form these relations of solidarity. And so it is not surprising because it is the antithesis of NATO. It is the antithesis of these nation states that are going in a fascistic authoritarian direction in many parts of the world. So they're struggling, they're trying hard to survive, they're trying hard to not only survive, but to uh, further liberate, right? Because revolution, freedom is not something that's done. For example, no one in the Kurdish movement would claim ever that it's done and they're free. It's always more and more and revolutionizing, a constant revolutionizing. So while they're doing this struggle of survival and revolutionizing their societies themselves and societies around them, we have seen a backlash by the power holders, the system holders against this because it is basically too dangerous. It is, you know, in a way, uh, this, it's anti-systemic potentials are too dangerous for system, for power holders like NATO and European countries. And of course, obviously, the colonizer states of Turkey, Iran, and beyond. So at this moment, I think it's very critical, something that Nazan mentioned in her talk, the peace negotiations and the abandonment of peace negotiations, because this is also a moment where people try to adopt parts of the promises of Kurdish movement while simultaneously recriminalizing these radical, promising, revolutionary freedom dreams. So it is that we recognize Kurds, we recognize the oppression of Kurds, and we would like that to stop, but with the caveat of, for example, separating uh, different branches of the movement, for example, separating and asking for forces in the movement from in the broader area of Kurdistan to separate themselves from those who were criminalized first. This is the PKK and the Kurdish freedom movement that's been aligned with this. So at this particular moment, I think it's very important for all of us who care about peace and women's freedom and radical pluralist democracy in the region to rethink some of the discourses through which we have related to the Kurdish movement. For example, there's been recent writings by liberal academics who are ready to recognize the Turkish state violence, but are also careful 
to distance themselves from especially the PKK, but those who are suspiciously linked to this movement. So I think then the question is, what is PKK? How can we rethink of this? Why is it uh, making into this monster if its ideology has given rise to Xinjiang Azadi, to women, life, freedom, if its ideology has given rise to the freedom dreams that Nazan mentioned. So I think part of it is, despite you know all of us saying colonization of Kurdistan, colonization of Kurdistan by, for example, Turkey in this case, that I think there are a lot of academics, liberal academics, that are very hesitant to rethink this particular relationship between Turkey and Bakur, which is the northwest of Kurdistan. What is this relationship? They are Some of them are ready to recognize state violence, but they're not ready to recognize this as an anti-colonial struggle that has emerged out of not only this particular violence in the 80s, not only this particular violence in the 90s where Turkey, you know, violated human rights because these academics are readily recognizing some of these episodes of violence. But what we need to be recognized is the foundational and systematic violence of colonialism that has perpetuated towards the region against the Kurds and that has colonized knowledge production about the Kurds and that has separated this, in a way, Mahmoud Mamdani, for example, talks in the example of 9-11, this notion of bad Muslims and good Muslims. Good Muslims are those who are right cooperating with the colonialist, imperialist regimes. They're okay. They don't threaten us. Uh, similarly, we see this even among the more liberal, progressive academics, um, discourses such as, um, you know, good Kurds, for example, HDP is good. And, you know, maybe Rojava, if they can distance themselves from the PKK, it's okay. But what is wrong with the PKK? And so this is a very important discussion, because if we have a state that has colonized the region, massacred and conducted genocidal projects, killed tens of thousands of people, for example, in my hometown of Dersim alone, then do the people have the right to self-defend? Do the people have the right to self-determination? And that self-determination, by the way, doesn't need to be in the form of a separate nation state. And we know the movement has changed its trajectory and is no longer demanding. But that that self-determination is about whatever struggle, whatever resistance the movement demands and whatever project of living and governing oneself that they demand for themselves to be recognized by those who are serious about peace in the region. I think, I believe that despite popularization of Kurdish resistance, despite us being here today discussing this, right, in this podcast series, that there is a lot of foundational work that needs to be done in terms of, A, recognizing the systematic and foundational violence of non-existence that was pushed onto the Kurds. And also there is major tremendous work that we need to do to get out of the state discourse of violence, anti-violence, to get out of the state discourse of terrorism, to recognize resistance movements, struggles by the people on the ground who have been 
fighting an anti-colonial, anti-capitalist, anti-patriarchal struggle for resistance, for being. So for us to break free of state and liberal discourses of two sides of the coin, violence, you know, and to develop new vocabulary, as Nazan suggested here, the Kurdish movement has developed new vocabulary as an alternative to the systems that have oppressed them. But I think this is the moment for those who care about peace in the region to develop alternative vocabulary to the Turkish state and to the colonizer states and to NATO powers to push for this alternative vocabulary and they're accepting, relating with the movement on its own terms. So I believe that this will be very important to stop the criminalization of the Kurdish movement, to stop criminalization of those who are outside of Kurdish movement, but are constantly being, you know, being terrorized and being interrogated about their relationship with the Kurdish freedom movement. But importantly, right, once again, to stop these discourses of war and terror and to replace them with colonial reality and foundational systematic violence against the Kurds and the alternatives to this And the important alternative is pushing for peace negotiations, but not on the terms of the Turkish state, because this often comes up in liberal academia and discourses about, well, then, for example, the PKK should drop arms if it's serious about uh, peace. But I'm going to say, suggest one thing, because this is a case that I looked in depth, for example, in the case of Darsim. In 1938, prior to 1938 genocide, The Turkish state collected all weapons from the hands of people. It left people defenseless. But then it continued to massacre tens of thousands of people and forcefully displace them. And this was much before, as we know, the formation of the PKK. So when we recognize this foundational colonial violence, then we realize that the denial of self-defense from the people only puts them under more danger. So if we are serious about peace negotiations, peace in the region, that we really need to reconsider our discourses that may be unknowingly situated in the colonial Turkish discourse of of terror and war without us recognizing it. Thank you very much. Sardar? Thank you very much, uh, Sertaj, uh, your whole team, uh, for inviting me, for organizing this. Thank you, Nazan Özlem. I don't... Uh, have a lot to add. They basically said what has to be said, and it has been said on so many occasions, many places, many articles, and uh, many things have been written. Um, but it is very important to continue this discussion. If I start with the title of this podcast, this specific one episode, I think the Middle East has been in war for far too long. And we know this, the catastrophe that this, all of these wars is dictatorship regimes, authoritarian governments, depression that they have brought on the people. I have said that in other places that if what is happening in the Middle East was taking place in, in the West, in Europe, in North America, we would have changed fundamental changes in the way we conceptualize our sociopolitical life. Many concepts that we are using and uh, we're talking about, like the concept of sovereignty, the concept of uh, the sovereign power, the relationship between state and society, all of them, I think, make some real changes because the 
international relations, the regime of these countries, governments, nation states operating, it does not respond to the suffering of the people. Like in Syria, we know hundreds of thousands have been killed. Millions have been displaced. Cities have been destroyed. Other parts, Afghanistan, Libya, Yemen, Kurdistan, in all four parts, Iraq, this and this has been going on for, for decades. And the only thing that is not a parameter in our, in the way that policy, global policymaking and the way that the, the regime of international relations has been established is the, the suffering of the people, the oppressed, the marginalized, the excluded, all of those who are, who have been basically removed from the history, all of those others. And a regime of normality has been pushed in, in the whole region and it is not responding. And I want to come back to Iran and the revolution of Jinnah, uh, the revolution that started with the brutal killing of the Kurdish girl, uh, the Kurdish woman, Jinnah Amini, also na- uh, known by her other name, Mahsa Amini. So as you all know, in September, Jinnah uh, was killed. And after that, during her funeral, spark of a new movement that I myself, like many other people, call it a revolution, started in Iran and Rojalat in the Kurdish part of Iran. Rojalat meaning east or eastern Kurdistan, but it doesn't mean part of a specific country. Like It's part of the imagined decolonial Kurdistan. So after that, we see how protests spread all over Iran and Rojalat and many parts of European countries to diaspora. And as Özlem mentioned, many people also took the slogan. We see European parliamentarians saying Zhenjian Azadi in their meetings, cutting their hair, and a revolution started. And this is the revolution of what I call the revolution of alterity in Iran. Because Jina Amini was not just the embodiment of a Kurdish woman, but also embodiment of many like forcefully created others in Iran. So with uh, being a woman, we know that in Iran, LGBT community, queer community, extremely uh, criminalized. Uh, being Kurdish, we know uh, different ethnic minorities in Iran uh, have been excluded, oppressed, and criminalized. Their uh, cultural and linguistic rights have been denied uh, since uh, the revolution, uh, the Iranian revolution of 1979, but also before, during the Shah's regime. Uh, one can say throughout the 20th century with the establishment of the Iranian nation-state. But she was also a young woman, and uh, similar to youth in, in the whole Middle East region, the young people have been increasingly excluded and sidelined by this powerful people, powerful man in all of those countries. It's not something specific to Iran. At the same time, she is coming from periphery. And this is a very important point when we talk about Iran, because Iran is very much centralized country, socially, economically, politically, everything goes back to Tehran. And it's very ironic that Tijina was in Tehran for a visit and probably to see a doctor and also probably just to visit the state, like central city that everyone basically in Iran goes there. She was a member of uh, the peripheral part of the Iran that includes ethnic minorities like Kurds, Turkmens, Arabs, Baluts. And also she was, I can also say that, that she was a Sunni. Probably she was not a practicing uh, religious person. And this is also very important because Secularism is something widespread in, in the Iranian society, but in terms of the religious identity, 
She was a Sunni, and with Sunni people, we can also name Zoroastrians in Iran, Baha'is, and uh, all religious minorities. Darabish Gunabadi, also part of that. Yarasan, Kurdish Yarasans, Ahl Haq, they could be also part of that. So Gina was like truly, she was truly an example of all of those other identities that have been historically oppressed, marginalized, excluded. And this was kind of a revolution of this alterity against uh, the normativity that the not only in Iran, in the whole region we see, has been imposed on the people. And when you see that the slogan Jinjia Nazadi coming from the Kurdish movement, as both Nazan and uh, Özlem talked about, uh, Jinjia Nazadi, of course, uh, in translations and in all of these political man- uh, manipulations, uh, the meaning, the history, the politics behind it uh, many times is getting lost. But when you look at the the politics behind it, the way that Abdullah Öcalan and the Kurdish movement drafted this uh, paradigm of democratic confederalism, there you go, we have new concepts, new political, philosophical way of how to reorganize the Middle Eastern society based on grassroots mobilization. These people, so basically if I define democratic confederalism, this main paradigm of Abdullah who drafted in a series of uh, prison writings between 2002 to 2007, probably Nazan could uh, talk about that more. Like a basic definition would be this cultural, religious, different uh, groups in the Middle East, they can rule themselves based on principles of radical democracy, coexistence between all of these groups, minorities that we named them academically maybe, based on respecting women's lives and freedoms and their rights. This is a very important issue in the Middle East region, based on ecological living, based on cooperative economy. And we do see the realization of this paradigm in Rojava, which is heavily under attack, under embargo, by especially by the Turkish government, but before by sectarian groups that were funded by all these governments in the region, by Assad, uh, by Iranian groups, supported Iranian militias, and also by Kurdish nationalist groups, by Barzani. So while Kurds are divided into these four countries, uh, this is very, very important what Ojalan says, that yes, Kurdish nationalism tries to bring all of these uh, parts of Kurdistan together to create this uh, new nation state, this new country for Kurdistan, this imagined place. But on the other side, Ojalan sees Kurdish population in all of these four countries as a revolutionary engine, a revolutionary force to change these four countries and with that changing the whole Middle East. So going back to what I started, uh, this the war in the Middle East and this situation needing new concepts, new way of talking about uh, what our people, what we native scholars, people are coming from the region, but we are being true, we do have concepts, we do have theories, political paradigms, solutions that are coming from the deepest oppressed, deepest parts of the society, from prisons of Turkey, from prisons of Kurdistan. And we see in the example of Jina, Jina Amini, that people can come together. Iran, like a multi-ethnic, multi, a very diverse country, uh, different religion groups, they all came together with the slogan of Jinjian Azadi. And for the first time in the history of Iran, I can say that as somebody uh, who had been involved in the last 20, 30 years with the, the politics of Iran and Rojava, for the first time we see 
this really incredible, unprecedented uh, revolutionary movement that even though right now under like severe attacks, uh, two people have been executed, many people uh, have been listed for execution the following days, this revolutionary movement is uh, going to change. And this is the promise that we all need to support to, to be in solidarity with. Okay, I'll stop here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sardar. Actually, if I may, I'd like to um, ask a question abusing my power as a chair, which is one of the luxuries. Lots of lots of things were racing in my head, but all each one of the three speakers, um, you have addressed creating new vocabularies, which is very important for you know my entire team for this kind of beyond Tahayul team. We keep uh, meeting with other scholars who are like native scholars who are trying to kind of be part of their own decolonizing movement. And, and I think Kurdish movement has a specific place in this entire understanding of decolonizing movement. So anyway, so the, like everybody was was giving reference to, to creating new vocabularies and new vocabulary uh, is obviously needed for new imaginaries. But it seems to me um, that the challenge here in this in this particular case is quite multi-layered. And I don't know if I can kind of articulate this uh, with all its multiplicity, but when I think immediately the Kurdish movement is creating new vocabularies to both to transform certain archaic norms, as, as you have mentioned, including the gender norms as an example that was given, but also to push back the narratives used by the Turkish state, the narratives that are used to legitimize violence and somehow steal the, the realities of violence away from the victims and away also from the bystanders. So so I wonder, maybe what maybe each one of you would like to kind of make, like clarify example, like clarify through examples or, or reflect on this, because this, this kind of like creating new vocabularies is important. You need to gain intelligibility by, by your own community, but you are also fighting against these kind of narratives and we are living in this in this period of post-truth obviously my favorite topic and again in my book i talk about this a lot what is this new vocabulary that is emerging in kurdistan to define and to to talk about truth well we have to understand i mean i will make several points one of them is that Turkish Kurdish freedom movement, I mean, the, what makes Kurdish freedom movement very specific, I think, is that it has learned a lot from analysis of patriarchy. More than maybe analysis of colonialism, it has learned from analysis of patriarchy. And one of the things which we say when we talk about patriarchy is, of course, patriarchy defines reality for us, right? I mean, women's reality is defined in patriarchy, and women are always seen as lacking something in terms of a lack. So how are going to women redefine themselves autonomously? And feminism has, of course, developed a whole literature, a whole bunch of vocabulary, paradigm, right, to answer that. And Kurdish freedom movement does a very similar thing following actually learning from the world, learning from the feminist movement all around the world. And the pioneers doing this are, again, women from the movement. 
For example, bedenleşme, one a word that they often use. What is bedenleşme? Beden means body and bedenleşme, I don't know, somebody would probably translate it much better than I, but I will for now say bedenleşme is becoming a body, right? Or developing a body. Why is this like such an important word? And what does it mean, bedenleşme, as a... I mean, it is uh, because uh, Kurdish freedom movement said things, you know, I mean, there are a lot of different things, but by, you know, reflecting on patriarchy, by thinking about the various ways in which women have been rendered flesh, okay? And here I'm again referring to African-American women's literature, you know, African-American women have developed this vocabulary flesh to describe the material truth of our bodies to which we mostly relate during times of violence. In other words, violence disembodies us, renders us to flesh, and that's one thing and makes us extremely vulnerable. But on the other hand, it also, it not only makes us extremely vulnerable, but it also enables us to gain a different form of knowledge about our own materiality. Okay, what are you going to do with this knowledge? What do you do with this knowledge? Well, with this knowledge, you create new institutions, and that is bedenleşme. That is, you are going to create new forms of life, new institutions, new relations, to defend yourself against the ways in which you have been rendered flesh. And this is called bedenleşme. It's a word I love. There is no equal word, word to it in or huebun. I Again, my friends would uh, probably pronounce it much better than I do. But huebun means being yourself. And being yourself in this instance means that I, as women... We have been uh, defined by other, I mean, by our oppressors. And how can we rename ourselves? We have been named by patriarchy. We have been produced by patriarchy. How can we rename ourselves? How can we learn the different ways in which our bodies can move, actually? What is the potential of our bodies? What is the potential of our intelligence? And So forcing those limits through different strategies and tactics that are also embedded in the practice of the movement and named in the practice of the movement, like platform, like sonsuz boşanma, etc. You become huabun, you you name yourself, rename yourself, you discover your potentialities and you learn what your body can do. As you said, this is a multi-layered process because it's about your own experience, right? How to articulate your own experience autonomously. But on the other hand, Kurdish freedom movement has always the ambition to become universal, which means, I mean, and this is the particular definition I would use, giving, uh, of course, due uh, reference to Ferreria, uh, another black scholar. Uh, She says, Universalism is difference without separability. So 
Kurdish women and Kurdish freedom movement produced this vocabulary of difference to explain their own experience, but then always related to the world and to the world. So they they always try to explain it, try to, you know, write a lot about it, talk a lot about this vocabulary. So it's not like a close. I mean, sometimes it feels like it's close. But if you dig deeper, you see that women have women are producing and publishing journals, publishing diaries in order to communicate these experiences to the outside world as well. So in that sense, as you say, it is multi-layered. Yeah, I, I love these examples. I hope they um, made sense to you too. Thank you very much. I would love to hear if anybody wants to add any notes. I would love to hear from Zaman Sardar. But before before we kind of maybe, if we if you want to further highlight other relevant examples, I want to say that this is like an exemplary, like something I think anybody who who has their heart in decolonizing movement is to look up to in in the entire Kurdish movement. Um and I say this wholeheartedly really. Uh like I, I like we are just running a small project and we can see how difficult it is to kind of create a transformative effect to find the right word that would be intelligible by the people you want to kind of gain support from and those want to you want to criticize as well i mean i'm just going to add a little and i agree with nazan i agree that kurdish movements and kurdish freedom movement kurdish women's freedom movement have been you know very much had this in-depth engagement with anti-patriarchal feminists you know women's in different parts of the world obviously not they all don't use feminism so but different branches of a women's Uh, freedom movement in different parts of the world, I agree that this has been more central to the Kurdish movement and the vocabulary around this has been vocabulary and practices and organizations, institutions, as Nazan said, have been more central to the Kurdish freedom movement than an anti-colonial vocabulary. But why, I just want to say just one word about why I emphasize that, why I emphasize the anti-colonial aspect of it. Because I think there's been a lot of talks, debates, discussions around decolonizing academia, decolonizing knowledge production, you know, looking at the knowledge production from below, this new, very important vocabulary that we should pay attention to, hear from, learn from, is very important. But at the same time, you know, in we live in a world where the movement is constantly being criminalized, where these projects are constantly being interrupted violently suppressed people involved have been killed imprisoned and continue to be imprisoned so if this is the reality then for me deconstructing the colonial language that people have used to engage with the kurdish movement and one example my own example i'm going to give you very interesting to me like when i i was invited to a conference uh, just a little workshop on kurds in Kurdistan at Yale University. And there were a lot of graduate students there. And they found me to be very radical. Like what I tried to do is to explain the colonial reality. I used the word colonialism. Now, the reason I'm just going to say some of these old words, old vocabulary, 
people resist this old vocabulary. For example, these are the same graduate students for whom biopolitics, the concepts that the Kurdish movement produce are interesting. They're hip, but they can't engage when I say Turkish state has colonized Kurds. Turkish state has colonized Bakur. When I use the word Bakur, which is, you know, northern Kurdistan that's under the colonial borders of Turkey. When I say Turkish colonial prisons, it's too radical for them. So then I think some of the old vocabulary is still needs to be learned, needs to be retold. And some of the vocabulary that people use are really embedded, are shaped by these colonial discourses, are shaped by geopolitical ways of engaging with movements. And this is our imaginaries. So while we're opening up to this new vocabulary, I think there's still a lot to do in terms of decriminalizing the movement, decriminalizing the vocabulary that's necessary to understand, as I said, the systematic and foundational reality of colonial violence against the Kurds. Thank you very much, Özlem. Um, Sardar? I think don't have uh, a lot to add, but I would say that one problem is that unfortunately among the left, the progressive in the region, Turkey, Iran, among Arab progressives, there is also this kind of exclusion of Kurds or not really giving the credit or considering the Kurds or the Kurdish movement to produce ideas, to produce theories. For change to produce concepts with new vocabulary for change and even when they are using them like we uh, in the last few weeks we saw that among uh, some nationalist uh, iranian politicians among both opposition and even some kurdish opposition groups and those who are kind of in anti-imperialist iranian uh, front they they do use jinjian azadi they like it very much but they disregard the history behind it, the politics behind it. So many people in many different sessions, panels, talks, they talk about that, that this Jinjian Azadi slogan has quite politics, quite a, a system behind it that we shouldn't dismiss in translation. Uh, Jinjian Azadi is not just women like freedom or in Farsi, Zenzendegi Azadi. I mean, Ojalan in 2013, in a letter, said that this is a magic formula for the revolution in the in the whole region. And women are the protagonists of this revolution. And he does, and the Kurdish movement has been doing what they can to, to say that this whole movement, this revolution, is not about Kurds, it's not about the Kurdish people are like, of course, we are in an anti-colonial struggle. But at the same time, this anti-colonial struggle is for the whole region to transform and to change the fate that has been envisioned for, for the region. Like one example in, in the Rojava region of Syria, right now I'm working with the university there. They all the time correct me that this region is northern east region of Syria. And they emphasize on that. And it's very interesting that the Assad regime right now is more sensitive with this new established, newly established university, Al-Shaq University in Raqqa, than to the University of Rojava or the University of Kobani, because they see that this movement is spreading to all parts of Syria and it gets audience among Arab communities, the, uh, the people who were under the rule of 
the Ba'ath regime and then under the rule of Daesh and the sectarian groups after the civil war started. And they are afraid of that. They are afraid of Junjian Azadi. And we know, just uh, as Özlem mentioned, Nagihan Akarsal was murdered, assassinated by Turkish agents in Suleymaniyah. And a new wave of attacks started against Rojava just during the time that everyone is talking about the Kurdish movement, is talking about uh, Öcalan's ideas of Junjian Azadi and uh, Öcalan's uh, paradigm of uh, women freedom in the region. So I think one step we could think about is to kind of continue this discussion with the progressive groups, uh, leftist groups in the region and spread this vocabulary. I think the Kurdish movement, Nazan uh, could uh, talk more about that, has been very successful in doing that in, in Turkey. And uh, it has been translated into, into a political project, the HDP, the People's Democracy Party, uh, which is right now under continuing attacks by the regime. But also with, in Iran, with the Jina's revolution, we see that this paradigm is moving forward in other parts of the region. And right now, many Iranian Farsi intellectuals, academics, people are coming to ask, asking me for books, for uh, writings of Ojana for, for other examples of how the Kurdish movement is contacting this revolutionary project. So I think it's ongoing and it needs to be spread, this very conversation that we have. And uh, this is the time of building solidarity, I think. Thank you very much. I don't know if you have any questions to each other, but I'm receiving a message from a private channel right now uh, asking to learn a little bit about the Rojava University and their uh, take on decolonizing movement, actually. Sardar, I think maybe you can also tell a little bit about the decolonizing summer, the summer workshop school. series. Yes. That's yeah, we had a very successful summer school just the past summer. Özlem and Nazan also involved in that. We had eight seminars, uh, public seminars, and uh, closed sessions between our students and uh, students, uh, graduate students at the University of Bremen in Germany. So the University of Rojava was established in 2016. It's part of uh, the uh, new education campaign of the, the uh, autonomous administration of northern East Syria. There were four universities in the region. Uh, 2015, the University of Afrin was established. That whole area is under Turkish occupation right now. 2016, uh, University of Rojava was established. 2017, University of Kobani. And in 2021, University of Ashar in Raqqa was established. So University of Rojava is part of this, as I said, rebuilding the region, constructing and restructuring the educational institutions of the region. There has a history, of course, behind. There is a history behind the University of Rojava as well. We had different academias in the region, such as Academia, Mesopotamia Academia, and many academias established and run by uh, the women's uh, movement. Our institute, the Institute of Social Sciences, which is a graduate uh, institute, was established in 2020. We're continuing with two uh, cohorts of students. But many people who are involved in, in this work are coming from different universities in Europe and North America. Uh, yeah, we had uh, two summer schools. The second one was on decolonization, and we hope to uh, have a journal with the first issue specifically talking about decolonization, but also continuing uh, organizing panels and discussion series. Hopefully, next year we will have a discussion series specifically to read Ojalan's uh, literature. Thank you. That's really quite exciting, I'm sure. 
Um, I'm saddened to say that we have only one minute. Do you have anything that you felt like should be highlighted a lot more kind of clearly or boldly? Maybe we can spend that last minute with those notes. I mean, I want to say Jinjian Azadi as my last words, uh, because Jinjian Azadi, it means, as Sardar has explained many times, that as women, we have been separated from life by being restricted and dominated by patriarchy. But we are going to once again embrace life through different means, embrace life on the street, embrace life on the parliament, embrace life in the workplace, embrace life in the everywhere. And that's going to be the path to freedom. I don't think anybody can add anything more to this. <laughs> a wonderful ending. I'd like to thank you for, uh, on behalf of the entire Tahayu team and um, see you in the next episode. Thank you.